Hello, this is Mark Bassingthwaite. Welcome to the latest episode of Alps In Brief, the podcast that comes from you from the historic Florence building in beautiful downtown Missoula, Montana. And today I'm very pleased to have as our, our guest, Kobe Gibbs, a longtime friend and colleague here at Alps. And uh, Kobe, before we jump into the uh, discussion we're going to have today, could you take just a few moments and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I have been at Alps for uh, almost 15 years. I started out in private practice in Billings, Montana, doing tax and estate planning, uh-huh. um, real estate transactions, and then uh, went to the public defender's office in Yellowstone County and worked on um, felony criminal cases. So okay. quite a jump. Yes. <laughs> Got a little trial practice and then uh, was offered the job at Alps and was able to come back to Missoula. And Alps has been uh, privileged to have you here ever since. It's, it's been a lot of fun. What I would like to talk about today, Kobe, or, or, or sort of what, what got me started here was there is a movement a number of years ago that started in Australia that has since gone to several provinces in Canada and now is beginning to come to the United States. Uh, both Colorado and Illinois are looking at this. And basically it's called proactive management-based regulation. And, and the gist of it is bars are starting to think, you know, do we better serve the public uh, by promoting the ethical practice of law as opposed to uh, disciplining lawyers after something has happened. And so the, the idea is, is encouraging lawyers and law firms to look at practices and procedures and, and to, to do a lot of training and education, again, being proactive about uh, how we um, just practice so that we, we try to avoid the ethical uh, failings or shortcomings that, that, that some lawyers find themselves in. And so in light of that, I thought it would be very interesting to just visit with a claims attorney and get your perspective, um, you know, because there's a lot of overlap with, with discipline and, and claims um, in terms of just the kinds of uh, trouble some lawyers find themselves in. And I'd really just appreciate some of your thoughts when we talk about proactive risk management. From a claims perspective, could you share with our listeners the kinds of things you think about and say, these are, if you could implement these practices, I think this would go a long way in, in having you avoid finding themselves in situations where they're dealing with claims. So what, what are your thoughts? Sure. Um, I think the first critical issue is client selection. So um, just not accepting every client that walks in your door. Um, That can be hard when you're a solo practitioner um, and in a small jurisdiction where, you know, you need to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know how many times I I can't count how many times literally I hear, I knew I shouldn't have taken on this case or this client. It was a problem. It was this person was going to be a problem. They were difficult um, from the initial meeting. And so if that would be my number one um, suggestion is if you have any any ability to really think and trust your gut on, on whether to accept a client or not, it will save you so much yeah. trouble in yeah. the future. And, and, and you know, when I think about that, I, I'd also say at times, you know, even when I was in practice, you, you occasionally end up with somebody that you realize after the fact isn't 
you know, somebody you necessarily, I mean, could be the potential problem client, you know, you shouldn't have taken them on. You know, and I think I, I would just encourage folks, if you find yourselves in that situation, get out if you can, or at a minimum, at least learn what you missed, you know, and, and try to, so next time you can say, oh, I, I need to ask these kinds of questions to make sure that I don't land in this situation again. But what, what other thoughts do you have? That's number one. I assume well, that... um, number two, I know this kind of goes along with even if you, no matter what your client, if mm -hmm. they're difficult, if they're getting along with them, great. They need to be updated and you need to have good communication with that client. Right. Uh, right. We That's where ethical complaints start is when uh, it's a client you don't really want to deal with or it's a case that is uh, you don't want to deal with. Um, you've put it off and then the telephone calls don't get returned. The communication doesn't get returned and clients start to get very frustrated by that very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say having just very clear communication, um, also documenting in your file, that is, yes. that is critical. In writing, um, I, I will ask if, if this attorney, um, when they come to us and have an issue, if, that, if there's any documentation of that decision being made by the client um, in writing in the file, and when there isn't that written documentation, it makes our job a lot more difficult to defend that attorney. And, and so what I'm hearing from this is it's not just about trying to preserve some emails or, or you know, just what we're talking about with the client about. But am I understanding correctly that you're really trying to say we need a written record of the advice being given how the, the decisions are being made. A am I correct if that's? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so on any major decisions, whether the client is following your advice or especially mm -hmm. not choosing to follow your advice, document it in writing and why. Yeah. Um, because for example, if the client says, you know, I, I am okay with taking this risk, you've advised them of the risk and there are two different paths to go down and they say, I'm good with taking that risk. Well, if, if you document that and, and, you know, it can just be an email. It doesn't have to be critical. Right. Um, you know, they don't have to sign off on this giant waiver. Yes, right. But um, just, just documenting that, yes, this was discussed, you know, the pros and cons, and the client chose to take this risk yeah. or this to pursue this strategy. Mm -hmm. Then if the case does not proceed, because there's always going to be a winner and a loser, so to speak, um, if the case doesn't go as the client wants and it comes back on that decision, you have it documented that yeah. that was a, a, you know, a knowledgeable decision. They were informed before they made it. Um, but when we don't have that documentation, it is, it is much more difficult. And, and I want to underscore, because I think there's another point you've made that, that I want to make sure is, is very clear for, for folks. As we sit here and you're talking about, you know, documentation is particularly important when the, the uh, client may be doing something that is not necessarily what the attorney is advising. Um, am I understanding correctly that the um, you are also suggesting that the attorney advise and then of course document uh, the client that the um, the client is aware or made aware of the legal ramifications of making this decision against the advice of the lawyer. A am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Um, and kind of another suggestion along this line is is in your retention letter whether you're going to limit the scope of representation. Uh, so many times we find it's just handling this personal injury case. Uh, well, that includes everything then. Right. 
And so if, if you aren't going to handle, say, you know, tax implications, um, investing, uh, the settlement funds that needs to be clearly documented in the file mm-hmm. or in the retention mm-hmm. agreement, mm-hmm. Um, and just again with clear communication, so the client knows what you're doing, what you're not doing. If they need to hire separate counsel to do something or get separate advice from another, a CPA or another professional, right. Right. Um, right. but that you're uh, not, you've not agreed to take that on, and so you're not later. Um, blamed for any uh, and, anything and, slipping yeah, through the cracks. And, and I think that is, is really very, very sound advice. You know, we, we tend to think of, you know, what we're really talking about is limited scope representation. And we tend to think of that in the context of, I'm intentionally sitting down and I'm only going to do this little piece. And, and I think lawyers do a pretty good job of that. But I think in lots of situations where we are providing full service, so to speak, uh, that, that clients may have some assumptions about, you know, what if I'm hiring this plaintiff lawyer and he or she's going to do everything under the sun for me, that it's important to document that the client understands, no, we don't do work comp here. And there's a work comp component. So I, I, great, great advice. Um, okay, other thoughts? Uh Calendaring is still a big issue, Um, you know, and I'm sure everyone is aware of how critical deadlines are um, and having someone, a a redundancy. So whoever's entering the deadlines, Mm -hmm. there's somebody else checking or there's some backup, not the same person double checking. but it, it, we still see so many missed deadlines. Um, and whether it's a failure to properly calendar or a failure to react to the calendar because the attorney has too many cases or mm-hmm. is too overwhelmed, yeah. um, we still have a lot of missed deadlines. And, and we really are seeing mistakes that failure to react to calendar and calendaring missteps. I and mean, we're seeing areas, I mean, there are, I guess what I'm trying to ask you, it's easy from a risk management perspective in terms of my writing say these things can happen and I just want to underscore that you're really telling us yes we do have claims where the calendar worked and for whatever reason nobody did anything anyway and it's just you know, so am I hearing exactly. correctly exactly wow. yes oh. for for example um, if there is a you know if there's not a routine review of deadlines and um, someone else checking I have had situations where a deadline came in between a couple of big cases that had other huge deadlines, and so those were pushed to to the front, mm-hmm. um, triage, so to right, speak. Right. And so a deadline that was thought maybe to be less critical was missed. Uh, the attorney thought maybe they could fix it, such as you know supplementing an expert disclosure. But in fact, the court then doesn't allow that supplement, and then the case is thrown out. And um, so those kind of things, it, it can happen. Um, yeah. And yeah. so it sounds easy, um, but having you know extensive calendaring. The other issue is um, you know conflicts of interest. Yes. Um, yes. And really, not only looking having everyone in the firm sign off on the clients, but also on what they're doing as far as the types of cases. So you don't have two clients who are competing oh, um, yes. okay. for the same, right. let's say Pepsi and Coca-Cola. Right. You, yeah. you can't represent yeah. both. Yeah. Right. right. Um, but I think that's starting to become a bigger issue. And so you need to be 
thinking about that and how to implement that in your conflict um, yeah. procedures. You know, one of the things that I, I hear and, and experience in terms of the lecturing and consulting I do is you, you'll find lawyers that um, practice in litigation, you know, they for the most part get the uh, significance of the conflict uh, issue and they have various systems in play and, and you know, I you know, we, we try to work with them if, if, if it's a little uh, light on process. But, you know, more and more I'm coming across transaction lawyers that uh, really kind of dismiss the conflict problem and they just don't see that as nearly significant because we're not adverse in, 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 the, in the sense of litigation, you know. Um, do we see conflict claims that come out of transaction practices? I mean, is, are they justified in saying, I don't have to worry about this? Or as a claims attorney, would you say, ooh, you know, what, what, just how do you, how do you respond to that one? No, there, there are still going to be conflicts that are going to arise. And it's it's really um, not whether you think there's a conflict. <laughs> yes. It's whether right, right. the client thinks there's a conflict. And sometimes the opposing counsel will yeah. bring it up. Yeah. Um, and so that can, you know, and maybe it's justified, maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. um, you know, sometimes yeah. it can be a strategy to try and get people right. off of a case. Right. But um, if you, you know, are confident in in what you, your process and that there isn't a conflict, then you can defend that very easily or respond yeah. to that right. allegation. Right. Yeah. And, and I think some things that lawyers miss at times, if... If we have a conflict, that means, well, we can't do anything. And, you know, there are times where there are non-waivable conflicts. I mean, we're both well aware of that. But there are times where ethically it's permissible to proceed with, you know, uh, informed consent. Uh, sometimes there's a screen that can be put in place. Uh, you know, it just depends on the circumstances. But uh, if we're not looking for them, I mean, that's Well, that's for a example, a, a significant issue is with... Um, you know, business startups. And okay. so who yes. who is your client? When right, you have, right. you know, two partners come to you that want to set up an LLC um, and, and maybe they're going to split it 50-50, maybe they're not. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, one client comes back later and says, well, I want it 51-49. Or, you know, you, if it's 50-50, who's going to be the tie break? So really, are you representing the... LLC that you're forming yeah, yeah. are you or are you representing you know one of the members or because mm -hmm. you can't do both right and so you know on those business transaction issues that's a critical one to okay be that's a great example of. yeah yeah and I I, I, I want to underscore again I can't help at times with, from the risk perspective you know and well maybe, maybe ask you this final question on conflicts you know it, the temptation is is to focus on systems and I certainly do not want to minimize the importance of, of a uh, automated conflict checking system that can be done in real time in terms of first contact uh, and, and tracking all the types of information that, that normally should be tracked but w from your experience here at Alps uh, and thinking about conflict claims are they more frequently uh, and oops we missed that name kind of claim or are they more frequently uh, a conflict might have been uh, might have been recognized but we didn't resolve it properly do you see what I'm saying exactly which do we see both what would you say is the we see both okay but I would say more often than not 
the firm has decided it's a waivable conflict and hopefully they followed through with getting the waivers but sometimes they haven't yeah, yeah. Um, and the other party may uh, it may not be a conflict right now but it may be something they need to be thinking about in the future mm -hmm. and so um, they might have thought about it and thought it's you know this isn't going to probably arise but when it does arise in the future, then it's, then yeah. it's a conflict yeah. that might not be waivable. Yeah. So, again, just making sure the client is informed so they can make informed decisions as well. Maybe they're fine with waiving yeah. it. Maybe, you know, they realize the relationship. And, and, I, and I think that is an excellent point. Um, because I, I, I find lawyers at times really want to say, well, we've identified the conflict and we can decide how to work through it. You know, the, the conflict, if you will, doesn't belong to the lawyer. <laughs> it belongs to the client. Right. And, and they get to decide you know, if this is waivable or not, assuming ethically it would be. But uh, you know, they don't have to waive. Uh, interesting. Good stuff. Well, Kobe, this is fantastic. Uh, information and I think you're so spot on on, on everything. We're, we're nearing the uh, the time we need to wrap this but do you have any final closing comments or other uh, tips you'd like to share? I'll just give, um, you the, give you a moment. I guess the last thing would just be uh, be informed when you're going into additional areas of practice. Um, you know we always say don't dabble. Right. We're not wanting right. to discourage people from um, you know, learning new areas of practice, yeah. but, um, yeah. you know, if, if you, if you don't realize, you know, if you don't know what you don't know, um, exactly. and so <laughs> that, you know, can come up and, and, um, especially if you're say working in a, in a family law case, and then all of a sudden a bankruptcy arises, um, you know, do yeah. you need to consult with someone so that you're making sure you're not violating the automatic stay, um, yeah. So things like that. Yeah, it and just... we, we do see uh, a lot of substantive law missteps, if you will. And I think uh, I would absolutely agree with you that this is a great piece of advice. You know, just don't shoot from the hip. You right. know, take your time. You need a co-counsel. You need a mentor. You need to actually research the law. you got to take the time to do that. So yes. uh, a, a point well, well taken. Well, this concludes uh, this episode of Alps in Brief. I hope all of you listeners found something of value today and please don't hesitate to reach out to any of us here at Alps anytime if we may be of service uh, and if you have thoughts of somebody you'd like to hear in a podcast in future or a topic you'd like to hear discussed please don't hesitate to reach out at me at mbass at alpsnet.com thank you for listening folks Kobe again thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank you bye bye all <laughs>